Come here, fellow servant, and listen to me. I'll show you how those of superior degree are only dependents, no better than we, and all in the livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in a livery. Tis here, fellow servant, and there, fellow servant, and all in a livery. Hello, uh, this is the American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be uh, continuing my look at some of the works of Benjamin Franklin, uh, specifically the stuff he wrote from around 1746 or so until really until the seven years war so um of course the seven years war is kind of an important uh moment for ben franklin because that's when he creates his albany plan or establishes Albany plan which is like something that's in like history books um pretty regularly about ben franklin um you know his attempt to try to create some kind of colonial unity in the context of that that conflict of course this podcast is not uh New to discussions about the Seven Years' War, I did a long series on Francis Parkman's work, uh, his mega history of the French in North America, and that had a lot about the Seven Years' War. Um, So some of that stuff will be be kind of familiar to us. Um, Now, as with the last episode, most of the articles here, it's just a selection of different articles by uh, Franklin on... You know, from, or sorry, from the Pennsylvania Gazette, you know, from that newspaper. A few things are are like self-published in other ways, but um, mostly this is stuff that appeared in the Pennsylvania Gazette. Um, but there's some stuff that I think are, are pretty, uh, some really interesting ideas throughout this this series. I talked in the last episode about how the articles gave me a sense of of the newspaper being kind of a, a public square. I talked about it being sort of an anthenaeum. Right. Um, and and I think that's a significant uh, sort of a benefit of the of the press and something I think that that Franklin is trying to develop a little bit. Um, anyways, the articles today, I think. Are there's a little bit more here. That we see Ben Franklin as a bit of a reformer, as a bit of a scientist, you know, he always wore so many hats, right? He was one of these guys who maybe he maybe he had ADD or something, right? And he was constantly changing his interests. I think that's, um, I mean, I hold with those who think AD, you know, ADHD is essentially just a different way of learning and a potentially very creative and interesting way of learning. He certainly uh, shifted his interests quite a lot. And we see that as we read these, these articles, I think. Um, there's a bunch here actually about, uh, about George Whitefield, who he had befriended. Now, George Whitefield was, of course, a preacher during the, the, the first great awakening. But I don't have too much to say about those. Um, one, one, one article here I really enjoyed reading was the speech of Miss Polly Barker. Uh, this is, um, this is actually just a printing of of the speech, I think, in the Maryland Gazette. So I don't know. The, unfortunately, the editor here didn't fully explain the context of all these articles. Is this all by Franklin? Is this a just, did he just edit this speech? Um, is it is it kind of a bit of a satire? I don't know, but it, it presents itself as a speech of this woman 
uh, was being prosecuted for having a bastard child, a fifth bastard child. So it wasn't just one. She had several bastard children, and uh, she managed to talk the court into to dismissing the charges, and they even induced the judge to marry her the next day. It's, it's all kind of preposterous the way it's presented that way when, when you hear think about it. But may, maybe it was just uh, Ben Franklin talking about you know using this as a way to talk about gender issues and sexuality and and the the monogamy double standard and all those kinds of things um but you know the heart of the matter is is there's a very convincing argument here in this in this speech now there's a few points here one is about you know should unreasonable laws be continued to be enforced and she makes the case no uh Quote, I take the liberty to say that I think this law by which I'm punished is both unreasonable in itself and particularly severe with regard to me who have always lived an inoffensive life in the neighborhood where I was born and defy my enemies to say anything that I ever wrong man, woman, or child, end quote. So saying that this, this law is attempting to, I guess, root out the nasty wenches kind of women, um, but it's actually affecting her unjustly. So that's one argument. Another argument is that if she's a sin, and this is really, the, I think, the key, really important one, is if she's a sinner and she's going to be punished by God for her sins of, of adultery and, and having children out of wedlock and all that, then that punishment is, is potentially infinite. So what role should the state play in enforcing those rules and adding more punishment to her? Will that not be sufficient? Will like a whipping or a fine or a beating or something bad happening to her by the state be, does it have any function in a, you know, to enforce religious law? I think that's what it ultimately comes down to is like, should the state enforce religious prohibitions? And I think Ben Franklin here is saying no. She makes another argument that laws shouldn't pro prohibit, uh, how's it said, natural and useful actions. And she's saying her having children is both natural and useful. Um, it punishes the children and she blames the men. She says, you know, men are also at fault for this. So why should women take the blame for, for this? Quote, is not theirs a greater offense against the public good than mine? Compel them then by a law either to marry or pay double the fine of fornication every year. What must poor women do when custom has forbidden to solicit the men who cannot force themselves upon their husbands? When the laws take no care to provide them with any, and yet punish if they do their duty without them, end quote. Um, so some really interesting ideas, I think, spattered throughout this, this speech. Um, in 19, or sorry, in 1747, Franklin published in the Pennsylvania Gazette uh, an article on the necessity of self-defense. This is presented as a letter to Ben Franklin, but it was apparently written by him. I think that's... We've talked about this last time that this seems to be something that happened a lot in newspapers at the time where editors wanted to have an opinion but they didn't want to put their name on it so they would just fake a essentially fake a letter to the editor and that's what happens here now it's, it's kind of a based on christian theology and a lot of biblical evidence for uh, the right of self-defense so um, that's that I, I thought it would be a little bit more interesting when i picked it up maybe going back to the malicious stuff that we talked about last time but nonetheless, it's, I think it's a significant little piece. Um, another one that makes me think of like Young Richard in a way, which I, which I haven't really read cover to cover yet. And I'll, and I'll get to probably if I continue the series on Franklin. It's in another volume of this Library of America collection. 
But here we have advice to a young tradesman written by an old one, which uh, really sounds like Good Richard in a lot of ways. Things like, you know, credit is money. Time is money. Um, you should save, like save a little bit each day. It adds up. These kinds of, uh, you know, pay off your debts because, uh, you know, interest on a loan is as good as a, a bill. All, all these kinds of things that, you know, people should learn, I think, and pay attention to. Whatever your feelings about the capitalist system are, there's uh, some some wisdom in, I guess, personal finance. That, that's kind of, uh, so there's nothing really surprising here, but it's uh, it exists. So um, that's what I'll say about it. I was a little bit more uh, interested in reading his proposals relating to the education of youth in Pennsylvania, which um, is kind of actually a little pamphlet. It's uh, wasn't published in the Pennsylvania Gazette. It was published in 1749 in in Philly, arguing for uh, not just uh, a general education for, for young people. I, I don't think he's really saying everyone should, but he is talking about the universal, I think, benefit of education for, for people. And he thinks that this is something that government should be involved in. So that's a key point, right? And eventually, of course, America would pioneer public schools. Um, publicly funded universities and as as even the work started moving away from aspects of that it's still a cornerstone of the american system is uh, universal i guess primary and secondary education so he makes a case for that here which i think it'd be tough to argue too much against i have my problems with education but uh making sure everyone has access to to some sort of education i think is is valuable to society certainly um, but then he goes into he kind of does curriculum development here which I which I enjoyed reading uh, now a lot of this stuff maybe seems kind of a little bit uh, silly uh, by our standards but I'm, I'm sure they had their place at the time right every educate and but I think that's a warning right like we constantly need to rethink our curriculum is what we're teaching is what's in our books is what skills we're trying to convey the most useful skills for the time. I, I feel that a lot teaching now where um, we're not maybe teaching the most useful skills that students maybe need to live, uh, you know, you know, to totally take advantage of the things, the technologies and the, uh, the, 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 the overall, I mean, the technologies of the time, but also the situation we're in, right? We rarely teach actually the situation we're in. You know, we teach like ancient history and stuff, but we don't necessarily contextualize it in the issues of our day, right? We, which is why students are kind of aloof from their education often. They don't feel really engaged in it. And I think Ben Franklin is saying here, education should be rooted in, in what people, what is useful, right? Everything should be useful. So he does talk here like, like handwriting and, and arithmetic and and English grammar and all those kinds of things, which seem kind of old-fashioned. But for their time, it, they, they were the essential skills you needed to be effective in the world. Now, part of this as well is, is moral education. We can see some influence, I think, of, the, of that First Great Awakening and the George Whitefield stuff uh, in this. He's got a section here where he talks about teaching morality. Morality by descanting and making continual observations on the causes and the rise and fall of any man's character, fortune, power, and mentioned in history, the advantage of temperance, order, frugality, industry, perseverance. 
end quote. And he's actually saying here, this is a reason we teach history, right? That's a question that I guess history teachers sometimes worry about, like, why are we teaching this? And he thinks history should uh, teach how to succeed, uh, how to speak, how to be a leader, right? The benefits of public religion at one point, he says, I guess now we could translate that to like a national spirit or something like that, something that unites a society. Um, the advantage of constitutions and civic orders. And he goes on in some detail about specifically what history should be teaching. Um, he writes, and if a new universal history were read, it would also give a connected idea of human affairs so far as it goes, which should be followed by the best modern histories, particularly of our mother country, then of those colonies, etc. So he's got an idea of what a, what a history curriculum should look like, which I valued. But he also talks a lot about here the need for a natural history curriculum that includes things like gardening and planting, grafting, inoculating. That those are the four things he highlights here. And yeah, let's we need much more of that. We're not... How many young people know outside of in a very shallow way how to grow food, which might be a pretty important skill in the future, depending on where climate change takes us and the overall decline of capitalism and the, the Western system. So useful skill. Skills uh, uh, on commerce are talked about here too. Um, so a lot of great stuff here in his effort to create really a, a curriculum for for education in the context of a goal to uh, to create some kind of public institution for education. Now he sort of follows this out with a sketch for an English school, uh, which he wrote for the consideration of the trustees of the Philadelphia Academy which is kind of a primary school where he goes through what should be taught in different years. It's, it's, it's primary education and not particularly interesting, but uh, not compared to the other article anyways. But yeah, I, this could be read together um, with the other, I think. But I think not as, uh, not as interesting in its perspective on on what education should be. It's more just a list. Like this is the kind of classes in year one, classes in year two, um, that kind of thing. Um, what else do we have here? Oh, this this is nice on transported felons. Uh, this is, of course, uh, an issue in the colonies at the time when, when capital punishment was pretty common in England. You had many people who were uh, transported as, a, as kind of a way of, of, of staying their execution. Um, and Franklin kind of comments on this and it, it's, it's a newspaper and it's kind of, uh, whining about these transported felons. Uh, I think overall, this has probably been a good thing for America's development that these people were allowed to come to, to the colonies, but, uh, we got kind of a anti-immigrant argument here. It's like, they're not sending their best. They're sending the rapists and the drug dealers or whatever. It's, it's kind of how this thing sounds, to be honest. Uh, and he gives specific examples of... Actually, it does kind of sound like Trump here. I was just sort of joking, but, you know, in a way he does, because he does, you know, Trump would, like, point out individual cases of some immigrant who did some... some illegal immigrant who did something horrible. So I say, this is why we should build a wall. Uh, 
you get a little bit of that here. Quote, well, this is kind of his conclusion anyways, to quote, in what can Britain show a more sovereign contempt for us than by emptying their jails into our settlements, unless they would likewise empty their jakes on our tables? What must we think of that bastard, which has advised the repeal of Henry law we have hitherto made to prevent this deluge of wickedness overwhelming us, end quote. Now, the interesting thing here, beyond his, his kind of uh, desire to keep out some of this riffraff from, from Britain, is a growing concern of what policies in England, are, what impact they're having on the colonies, which, of course, is going to become more significant later in his career as we work up towards the, the American Revolution. Now, also in this section is one of his more famous essays, uh, which is from 1751. Yeah, 1751, called uh, Observations Concerning the Increase of Mankind, Peopling of Countries, etc. So this is, this I've heard about for a very, very long time, where he predicts that the Americas will quickly overtake Europe in, in power and population just because of the large family size in the Americas and the availability of land and all that. Um, quote, Europe is mostly settled, full settled with husbandmen, manufacturers, etc., and therefore cannot now increase in people. So there's kind of a limit on growth in Europe, but those limits don't exist in the Americas. He also gives many examples of what policymakers can do to encourage uh, migration, such as developing land, conquering land, essentially. Because I think that's one reason this article has been, been kind of studied is because it, he does sort of imply that America's destiny is not for the natives, right? That's going to be taken over by, by these white people coming in. And another part here is he talks about... Um, racial things about the racial balance and by this point in american history racial consciousness is is certainly growing as this institution of plantation slavery is getting deeper and deeper in 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 the united states so it's um you know he's not immune from that but uh, franklin but here he does have some concerns he talks about like the west indies and he talks about how early on there's like white people there and they had a situation like in the rest of the Americas, but then they started bringing in uh, slaves and this diminished the number of white people there. Quote, the Negroes brought into the English sugar islands have greatly diminished the whites there. The poor are by this means deprived of employment while a few families acquire vast estates, which they spend on foreign luxuries and educating their children in the habit of those luxuries. End quote. Um, the whites who have slaves not laboring are enfeebled and therefore not so generally prolific. The slaves being worked too hard and ill-fed, their constitution are broken, and the deaths among them are many more than their births. So continued supplies needed from Africa. End quote. And I think most historians would confirm that this is the demographic history of the East Indies during the slave trade. It's like high death rates, low rates of of natural increase and, and constant immigration from the slave trade. But he says, like, this kind of, like, slavery is bad for the natural increase of, of the Americas. So he kind of uses that as a model to say we shouldn't do the same thing in the Americas. So his, he doesn't, I wouldn't say he's making an anti-slavery argument here, but he is making an argument suggesting black people and Asians, too, even mentioned, shouldn't be allowed in 
uh, because that will be a detriment to the overall increase of whites. And I guess this is going to be a short episode. Wow. Um, I guess that just sort of leaves the plan of union, which we have about 25 pages of, of documents about the Albany plan of union. But I don't know how much there is to say about it. Um, now, if you don't know, the context for this was the beginning of the Seven Years' War. And Franklin kind of observed the Iroquois Confederacy and saw the advantages of the Iroquois Confederacy in, in having its, its kind of united foreign policy, even though they had their local individual governments, right? The Cayuga and the Seneca and the Mohawk, they all had their own individual governments. But in terms of like foreign affairs and war and peace and stuff like that, they had, they had their broader the council, right? And uh, even though sometimes that broke down, like I think of the American Revolution, uh, some, some sided with the, the colonists and, and, and some with the British. I think one, maybe one group sided with the, the colonists. But anyways, the idea here is a unified foreign policy voice. Um, for security and defense, right? A mutual defense treaty for them. And, and the context of this is, is clear. It's like you have the French-Indian War. It's not clear how much the British army is going to be able to defend them from attacks on the frontier. And as we remember from our history of Francis Parkman, often they couldn't, right? Uh, George Washington was defeated in an early battle. And other, there was other early defeats by the French and their Native American allies in the frontier regions. And it looked like maybe you know, the war could have went poorly than it, than it ultimately did for the British and their colonies. So the idea is like, let's, let's create some sort of, of unified foreign policy of all 13 colonies. Um, and what some of the issues that in this, this plan, a lot here is about like elections and stuff, but um, purchasing from Indians, that was something that they would handle and deal with as a, as, as kind of a, uh, as a union instead of as individual states. Um, government for new settlements. Uh, the right to raise soldiers. Um, making certain, like, leveling some sort of taxation power for this is, is in here. How money could be issued. And, um, you know, a lot of this is basic constitutional stuff, like what happens if the president dies and, and who's going to succeed and, and all that. But the heart of it is raising money forming militaries, dealing with treaties with the Indians and all that. Now, that's not the only document. That's the official plan. But then he had this, like, this piece, the reasons and motives for the Albany Plan of Union, which is kind of his overall, um, his larger pamphlet published in 1754, arguing for the necessity of it. And basically, he goes through point by point, arguing um, or giving a little bit of, of catechism on each single point of the original plan um, for instance his argument for um, new settlements and is, is that there shouldn't be competition among the colonists you won't get the best um, you won't get the best price if you're competing as buyers right that makes sense he says it is supposed better that there should be one purchaser than many and that the crown should be the purchaser or the union in the name of the crown by this means the bargains may be more easily made same thing with uh, like the military. Rather than having 13 different militias, all with different commanders, if you just have one militia with one commander, it'll be more effective, more cost-effective as, as well. So uh, he justifies each point, and I think he does a pretty good job of it. Now, ultimately, the Albany 
plan of union failed and it didn't create that kind of uh, proto-U.S. government. But you obviously, we obviously know why historians are interested in this effort. It's because it is sort of a precursor to the, you know, to the later Articles of Confederation, the Continental Congresses, and the, and ultimately the Constitution. So I guess that's it. I zipped through it pretty quick, and I did skip a few articles here and there. But but I do. Th oh, I think the kite experiment was mentioned here too. But it's like it's just like one paragraph. This was a one little paragraph report on the kite experiment. And we all know that about Ben Franklin, so no need to really say too much about it. He was also an inventor and a scientist, in addition to all this other great stuff. So um, I guess maybe three more episodes to finish up. Uh, the next one will take us through... Um, through 1757, I guess. Then we'll look at his then we'll have an episode where we'll look at his writings in london i think yeah so maybe two episodes on his on his work in london up to 75 because of course he spent the, the those um 20 years or so during the seven years war up through the american revolution in london uh so that's it for now um yeah sorry i don't have too much more to say about these but i, I am enjoying them they're they're really fun to read it's um nice to try to get into this guy's guy's head um and i'm finding things i haven't studied before which is which is the main reason i'm doing this podcast i suppose so anyways uh i'll i'll let you go and i'll see you next time thanks for listening she craves so we laugh at the great world its fools and its knaves for we are all servants but they are all slaves and all in a livery tis here fellow servant and there fellow servant and all in a livery tis here fellow servant and there fellow servant and all in a livery